Some Hebrew. All right. Well, we're very honored to be here this morning, and uh, we had a great time here Friday night. How many of y'all were here Friday night? Okay, pretty good number of you. Um, well, we're here with the uh, Ancient Hebrew Scroll Project, which is a ministry of the Christian Heritage Foundation out of Cleburne, Texas. Any of y'all ever heard of Cleburne, Texas? One back here. Okay, two, three, four. Okay, wow. Okay, five people. Most of the places we go, nobody's ever heard of Cleburne, but we're just south of Dallas, Fort Worth a little bit, and uh, we came straight out from Dallas to be with you guys here uh, Friday and this morning. We're so honored that you have us here with you this morning. And um, before I get into telling you about the scrolls, I want to share a few things that the Lord just kind of laid on my heart. Um, you know, 75 years ago this year, a shout went out from heaven, wake up. Dry bones awaken, and a miracle happened. A nation was born again after 2,000 years. Our, our people came back to our land. After 2,000 years, we were born again as a nation, not because we earned it, not because we deserved it, not because we finally got our act together, but because our God is a promise-keeping God. Amen? And... Um, and I'm a Jewish believer in Jesus, but I, I, well, I'm honored to, to let you know that we have a, a, a native-born Israeli believer here. Zev, can you stand up for a second? Um, this is Zev Nebo. His father is a Holocaust survivor. And uh, so he is in the embodiment of the dry bones that, that was prophesied that would, would be born again. He leads a ministry called Israel Ministry. Media Ministries, and um, anyway, we're, we're honored that he's here with us this morning. He's a great friend of our ministry, but you know, that, that I can't underscore the significance of the fact that not only did God bring our nation back to the land physically, but the process of bringing our people back to life spiritually has begun, and it is, and it is happening all around the world. Many Jewish people are coming to the realization that Jesus Christ or Yeshua HaMashiach, he is the promised Messiah. He is our Lord and Savior, and he is coming back. Amen? And we're uh, coming into the close of um, the first fall biblical holiday. Um, today it's called Rosh Hashanah, but um, in the Bible it's called Yom Truah, uh, the Feast of Trumpets, and uh, that, that coronated Friday night was the, was the beginning of that. And now we're in the middle of what we call Yamim Noraim, the days of all. And uh, uh, we have a greeting uh, uh, during this time. Uh, it's abbreviated today. We can say Shana Tova, uh, but the full thing is Lashana Tova Tikatevi, which means may you be inscribed literally in the book of life. The Jewish people believe that the scroll of life or the book of life is opened in heaven in, in this period, this week. Um, we know that we're inscribed in the book of life by, by one, and that's Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, and we're inscribed by his blood into the life, the Lamb's book of life. And, you know, it's interesting because it's, it's not just merely written, we're inscribed into it because our God is a keeping God. We're chiseled in there. That's awesome, isn't it? Good news. Um, you know, Psalm 12, verses 6 through 7 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, um, like silver tried in the furnace of the earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from generation, from this generation forever. And, you know, it's God Himself and not another that has preserved His word from generation to generation. What, what's here this morning, all these scrolls, is really an international treasure. And the uniqueness of, of what this is, I, I want to explain to you, is that, that there's only five complete sets of, of the Old Testament ancient scroll form on planet Earth. This is the only one in the world that people can see. 
There's some of the rarest biblical scrolls in the world are here. This psalm scroll that we have right here, there's only seven other psalm scrolls on planet Earth that are known. And this is the only one that people can see. And so this is really an international treasure. In Israel right now, they don't have a complete what we call Tanakh or Old Testament in ancient scroll form. We've had over 90 um, rabbis that have come all the way from Israel to this little town, Cleburne, Texas, to see our collection because they have never seen this before. The Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. actually invited this collection to come for six months a few years back because they don't have a complete Old Testament in ancient scroll form. So in Israel herself right now, they don't have what's in this house right now on this, the high holy days of the Jewish people. So this is really, this is really powerful and significant. Um, You know, and I mentioned um, on Friday night, you know, um, this holiday we call Yom Troah, the Feast of Trumpets. Um, you know, Troah in, in Hebrew, is a, it's a blast, a trumpet blast, but it's also a shout. It's a clangor, a battle cry, an acclamation. And we know in the scriptures that when Yeshua, when Jesus comes back and he's coming back, yes. what's going what's to signify his coming back? a shout and a trumpet blast, a truah. And you see, when Jesus Christ, when he came the first time, he came and he fulfilled the, the spring holidays, Passover, he died on Passover. There was no other day that he could have died on. God ordained for him to die on that day. Why? Because he had to be the Passover lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And, um, and then the very next day is a day called Unleavened Bread, Hagamatzah, which is a picture of the removal of sin. He's in the grave. And then the next day after that is um, Habikarim, the Feast of First Fruits. And it's a picture of the first fruits of the resurrection. You know, there's, there was the first fruits of the resurrection. When Jesus resurrected, other people resurrected, it tells us in the New Testament. And there are 500 witnesses to that. But there is a greater resurrection coming. That, that was a former but there's a latter resurrection coming that's much greater. And that comes in concert with King Jesus's return with that trumpet blast and that shout. And it says that the dead in Messiah, the dead in Christ are gonna rise and that we who are alive are gonna be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. And we're gonna get a new body and we're gonna be with him forever. Amen? And the scripture tells us that that's the blessed hope. Yes, we're in the midst of dark days, but he tells us to encourage one another with that blessed hope. That is good, good news. And, you know, we talk about harvest. The pastor was talking about Harvest Fest coming up. This is the time of the, of the final harvest uh, in the land of Israel. Um, and, uh, and there's a great last day's harvest coming uh, of people. Um, and there's a great shaking that's going to come upon this world, but there's going to be the greatest harvest of souls the world has ever seen. And um, a few years ago, we were singing that song, Roar. Uh, um, and I was, I was uh, in the middle of uh, just singing that song, and I, I just I thought about Roar, and I just had this um, acronym that went through my mind, Release of an Earth-Altering Revival. Roar. So, so let it come, Lord. Um, and um, the other thing I want to speak about, too, is the nations. You know, I'm a Jewish believer, and, you know, every believer has a mandate to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, 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 and, and that's important. But God's heart is for the nations also. My son-in-law is from Uganda. Um, pastor was talking about your church's heart for Uganda. Um, my daughter met him as a missionary in Uganda. I've got a daughter who's been a missionary to 14 different countries. And uh, we as a family have been together to over 25 countries um, around the world. And, uh, and the Lord's heart is for the nations. And, you know, we have another holiday coming up on the biblical calendar called Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. And Zechariah 14.6 speaks about the last days. Um, Jesus is coming back. Our, our people are going to see the one whom they pierced and weep and realize that he is, is the Messiah. But it says that all the nations are going to come together to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And why is that? Because the Feast of Tabernacles is a picture of the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's, 
the Feast of Tabernacles is really like a rehearsal dinner for the, for the coming wedding supper of the Lamb. And I said this Friday night, you know, uh, and the Lord was really heavy on my heart about this during Passover. We do, I was doing a Passover uh, presentation at a church. And, um, you know, when God brought our, our people out of Egypt, we were slaves. When we came out of Egypt, our status changed to be free men and women. Um, and that's a powerful thing. And it took a long time, and, and God's still doing it, removing the slave mindset out of us. Um, but when, when, when Yeshua, when Jesus came and he died on Passover, there was a big transition. Because no longer were we just free men and women, but now we're sons and daughters. Because Hebrews says we can go boldly before the throne of God. And that, for the Jewish mind, that is mind-blowing. It's incomprehensible because, you know, in the Jewish mindset, there was one time a year where one man, a Kohen Haggadol, the high priest, could go into the Kodesh Kodeshim, the Holy of Holies, to make atonement for the nation. That's how you approach God because he was that holy. And everybody kind of waited with bated breath to see if, if atonement was made. But Yeshua, who's the king and the priest, came as the, as the great high priest and king. And not only was the atonement, but he's the propitiation for our sins. And the status changed because now we're a kingdom of priests and that we, we're all sons and daughters and we can all go boldly before the throne of God. We don't have to rely on one man to do that. But he's not just coming back for a free man or a free woman. He's not just coming back for sons and daughters, but what is he coming back for? A pure and a spotless bride. And that communicates the greatest level of intimacy. Yes, he's taken you out of Egypt. He's taken you out of slavery. He wants you free. He's taking you into this place of sonship and daughtership. And that's that's a level of intimacy. I've got six kids. Five of them are grown and flown. But even though they don't live in my home, they know that they don't have to knock on the door and ask permission to come in. They'll come in and raid my refrigerator and clean it out, drink all my bubbly waters. And they can do that because they're my sons and daughters. They're welcome to do that. This is their home still. I'm still their dad. But there's a greater level of intimacy and relationship, and that is that bridal anointing that God is coming back for a pure and a spotless bride. Yes, you're a free man and woman. Yes, you're a son and daughter. But he wants to take you into the maximum level of intimacy with him, which is a pure and a spotless bride. And that's the one who gets to go into that inner chamber with him. Isn't that awesome? And that's what this is a picture of, these fall feasts, this Feast of Tabernacles that's coming up. It's a picture of this wedding supper of the Lamb that he's coming back for the bride. And it's our job as the bride to make ourselves ready. Amen? All right. One other thing that the Spirit of God just spoke to me before I get into talking to you about the scrolls was, was revival. And um, um, at the turn of this last century, there was a fellow named Evan Roberts. Any of you ever heard of him? Yeah, a few. And he started the Welsh Revival. And I was reading about this fellow. He was a coal miner. And he worked in the, in the coal mines. And he's chunking away chopping at that coal in the mines. And that's, that's kind of not a very good job, you know? And, um, but it talked about his prayer that he prayed, Lord, change them. Lord, change them. And this came to my mind as pastor was talking about prune me of every unfruitful vine. Um, revival broke out when his prayer changed. It went from Lord, change them to Lord, change me. Lord, prune me. When he's in that coal mine chunking away, Lord, change me. Lord, change me. God answered that prayer. Because if we want to see revival, the Lord wants to prune us of every unfruitful vine so that we can become a fruitful vine and bear much fruit. And if you want to see revival, I want to just encourage you as you're chunking away in your coal mine to ask the Lord, change me. Change me. Prune me of every unfruitful vine that I might be able to do what you created me to do. Amen? Amen. All right. Amen. All right. Well, that's the prequel. All right. Um, so I want to tell you a little bit about the foundation. Um, 
So we talked about this yesterday. We were part of one of your life groups or home groups here um, in that little building over there. And Miss Mary Ann shared about this, this foundation. So our, the foundation which has brought these scrolls here this morning is called the Christian Heritage Foundation. And it was established in 1982 by Miss Mary Ann. Mary Ann, can you wave your hand? Let everybody see you. And her husband, her husband, Walter, who was a remarkable man, and he, you know, he was, the Lord blessed them in business, in the, in the business mountain. And, um, and they were blessed in that mountain. And he wanted to sow back into the body. And so he created this foundation in 1982. And at, at the beginning of the, the genesis of this foundation, he created the foundation to work with every church in the county um, to help them financially in the area of benevolence, outreach, and evangelism. It didn't matter what church it was. It, it, uh, Pretty much all the churches in the county, they worked with them in those, in those three areas. And it didn't have to be all three of them. It could just be one of those areas. Um, and uh, and to, to bless them. And they did some remarkable things. Walter hired a team of people to go knock on every single door in the county and find out, do you have a Bible? And if you don't have a Bible, would you like one? Business and residence. And then they gave all those people a Bible with their name engraved on it. Then they found out, you know, if, you, if you're going to church, that's great. But if you're not, if you were to go to church, where would you go to church? And then they made a list. And then they went to every pastor in the county and said, here's everybody in the county who said if they were going to go to church, then go to your church. So go get after it. And uh, we also have this thing called Bridge of Hope, which is really amazing. Um, this started a little bit later on in, in the project, but um, we began to create sister relationships between pastors and churches in our county and congregational leaders in the land of Israel. And, um, and right now we have over 30 sister relationships between congregations in our county and congregations in the land of Israel. And it's, it's unlike anything I've ever, ever seen. And then the last piece of this is... The, the scroll project. And, you know, the Lord had moved on Walter's heart about Genesis 12, 3, and that I'll bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who curse you. And he wanted to receive that blessing of the Lord. And he, but he wasn't sure how. And the Lord had really, the spirit of God had just gotten on, on him about this. And about two weeks later, this pastor in the county reaches out to him and says, hey, Walter, I know you've been kind of chewing on this and Maybe this might be the thing. I got this fellow coming, and he's got 10 scrolls and, and some biblical artifacts. You can come to our church Sunday night. Would you, would you be willing to come? And so he came, and uh, he hears this guy's presentation. He walks up to the fella. He's got these ancient scrolls, 10 ancient scrolls there. And, uh, and he says, well, where do you keep these? And he goes, well, I keep them wrapped up in blankets in the trunk of my car. And, uh, and he said, well... I'd like to make a proposal. I, I want to, it's been on my heart to honor the God of Israel and honor Israel. So I'd like to offer my conference room as a place for you to warehouse the scriptures. I'll climate control it. I'll insure them, put in security system, the whole nine yards. You can come get them every time you need to do a presentation. But when they're not traveling, I'd like to keep them here. And so, so the guy took him up on that. And that was one of the best years of his business. Um, and he was mightily blessed. Well, at about the end of the, that, that first year, the fellow came and said, hey, I promised to um, give these scrolls to um, this fellow who's building a creation museum in Glen Rose, Texas, when, it, when it's done. And he's about done, so I'm going to have to move the scrolls out of here. And, um, and Walter said, well, I understand that. That's fine. And he goes, but I want to get my own set. And he said, well, Walter, that's, that's impossible. They're just not around. And he said, well, God and me, we just love that word impossible. And you didn't tell Walter no. And, um, and so he said, well, I'll, I'll try. And, uh, and uh, shortly thereafter, um, Walter had a massive heart attack and was promoted to heaven suddenly. And, uh, and Miss Marianne had to take over the business and the foundation. Um, well, some months go by and this fellow... He calls from Israel and calls our executive director and says, hey, I found uh, five scrolls. Would you be interested in them? And they talked it over and they said, well, yeah. And so that was the beginning of about a four-year process 
that culminating in us getting a complete set of the Old Testament, miraculously. And it takes 16 scrolls. A lot of people will refer to these as Torah scrolls. But the Torah scroll is really just this, these scrolls right here. It's, that's the first five books of the Bible. And then there's 15 other scrolls besides the Torah scroll to make a complete Old Testament. Like Psalms is its own scroll. We got the minor prophets right here. They're all together on one scroll. Ezra and Nehemiah together on one scroll. So it takes 16 scrolls. And that's the, really the rarity is all 16 scrolls that, that contain the 39 books of the Old Testament. There's only five sets in the world. The Vatican's got three sets. And unless you're a, a bishop or a cardinal or a visiting scholar, you're not going to be able to get to see any of those. Um, and then there's a private collection in Katy, Texas. And then there's this one. And um, so a lot of people will ask us about these scrolls. Um, are they originals? And that's an interesting question. And the answer to that would be both yes and no. So this, this particular Torah scroll, it's 500 years old. Moses himself did not write it. Okay, that would be the first edition. And that'd be pretty cool, but nobody has that. Nobody's got the first edition. This Psalm scroll here, um, David did not write this Psalm scroll. Again, that would be a first edition. Um, and that would be pretty cool, but nobody has the first editions. Um, in fact, the oldest known biblical scroll is the Isaiah scroll found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls, there were complete intact scrolls found, but the only complete intact biblical book that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls was the book of Isaiah. The rest of them were fragments, and the book of Esther wasn't present in, in, in that find so far. Um, but the interesting thing is, is that we have a replica of that Isaiah scroll that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. That thing is 24, 2,500 years old in that range. Our, our Isaiah scroll is about 350, 400 years old. If you unroll this, this Isaiah scroll and that one, letter for letter, there's no difference. They're, they're, they're completely the same. You're talking about 2,000 years of separation by two people who never met one another. Now, there's a lot of people out there that say that the Bible's not reliable, um, but I'm here to tell you that it is, in fact, reliable. And, you know, in that you can have absolute, utter, uh, what I call unconscious faith. And what do I mean by that? Well, when you guys came in here this morning, I, I, did, I said this Friday night, when you came in here this morning, did you check the legs of the chair to make sure it was going to hold you up? Did you just come over and well, that's a, that's a good chair. I'm, I'm safe to sit in it. Did anybody come in here and check the chairs? Anybody? Nobody checked the chairs. When you sat down in that chair, what did you expect to happen? You expect the chair to hold you up, right? That's faith. You didn't even think about it. It's unconscious faith. This chair is going to hold me up. Now, have you ever sat in a chair and never had it not hold you up? That, that scary moment when you fall to the floor. Pretty much everybody's had a moment like that where your faith was tested in chairs. <laughs> but you didn't stop believing in chairs, did you? Okay, even though it was tested by that moment or two that you had. Well, I want to tell you, if you can have that kind of faith in a chair, how much more faith can you have in this living word? And that's the thing I want to communicate to you this morning, that this word is living, that this word wasn't just meticulously preserved from generation to generation, but this word was preserved miraculously from generation to generation. And this is God's love letter and gift to you. And it's, it's profound to me because this is, um, I, this, this day where we're thinking about the scroll of life being opened in heaven in that verse in Revelation, who's worthy to open the scroll? It's Jesus himself makes me think, my mind just goes to that extreme holiness of that place of, of Yeshua, of Jesus, the one who's worthy to unroll the scroll. And it's God himself and not another who's preserved his word um, from generation to generation. So, the, you know, these, these scrolls aren't first editions, but they're written exactly as, as their predecessors have been from generation to generation as the oldest known copies have been. And, uh, and that's proof by that example that I told you from the Isaiah scroll. So, um, 
Now, as I mentioned earlier, some people find it hard to believe, but Israel herself does not have a complete Tanakh or Old Testament in the ancient scroll form. And you'll hear me say the word Tanakh. And Tanakh is how we refer to what the church world calls the Old Testament. And it's an acronym made up of the three divisions of the Hebrew Bible. The first division of the Bible in the Hebrew world is the Torah. Um, And this is um, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Church world is often referred to as the Pentateuch. Um, We call it the Tanakh, or the Torah rather. Um, The second division is called the Nevi'im, which is the prophets. For instance, Amos, Joel, Hosea, Micah, Jonah, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Nahum, and on and on, all the prophets. And then the third division of the Hebrew Bible is the Ketuvim, or the writings. And uh, for instance, the Psalms. And, uh, and these are the three divisions. When we take the first letter of those three divisions and we get the acronym or the name Tanakh. And that's how we refer to the Old Testament or the 39 books of the Hebrew Bible. Um, now, a lot of people are very familiar with the Torah scroll. And, um, and, you know, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word Torah? A lot of people think law. And it, and it is, but... But it's more than that. It's much more than that. In fact, if you read Genesis all the way through um, to the end uh, of, the, of, the, of the first five books, uh, you'll see that it, it's much more than law. You're seeing a love story. You're seeing God working in law. You're seeing um, broken people, broken vessels that God is working through. It's, it's also, we think of it as instructions, instructions from our loving Father. And... Uh, and I, I, I share this story quite a bit. Um, you know, I was adopted. Um, my adoptive father, Warren, he would used to tell me, Ted, I need you to take the trash out. Now, um, I, didn't like, I didn't like that job. And, uh, and if I didn't take the trash out, that, that instruction would quickly become law. And uh, I joke, but um, the, the point of it is, is it's, it's much more than that. Um, in the, in the synagogue service, anybody in here ever been to a synagogue service before? Quite a few hands. Um, I know you have. <laughs> um, we have this, this point in the service called Hakafa where we take the, the Torah scroll, which is the most common scroll. Almost every synagogue has a Torah scroll. And, um, and we keep it in a cabinet that we call the Ark or Aran HaKadosh. And um, we'll take it out and one of the things that we do is we lift up this, this scroll and we'll carry it on our shoulder and we'll carry it around the congregation and we'll worship the Lord. And as we're worshiping, all eyes are on the scroll as it travels around. And everybody in the congregation is going to touch that cover of that scroll and touch their lips as they worship the Lord. And then it'll make its way to the bame of the altar and then it'll be read from and taught from. Um, and the, the thing that I want to highlight to you from that is this sense of reverential awe. You know, one, one of the ladies I was talking to before the services, she said, she came in here and saw the scrolls, and she said, I'm just struck with awe. And I thought, how appropriate, because on the biblical calendar, this is the days of awe. And the thing that I want to see into your mind is this, is this intense sense of holiness, that this word is holy. It's holy. And um, in, in the Jewish mind, you know the, the story of Obed-Edom? Um, uh, the ark is on a cart being transported to Jerusalem. It's not supposed to be transported on a cart. It's supposed to be carried by the Levites on poles. And, uh, but somebody had the idea to put it on a cart, and it's on a cart, and it's about to fall off, and this fellow reaches up and touches it, and he dies. And then it stays at the um, house of Obed-Edom. Um, and in that three months, it, he prospers like he's never prospered before. And this sense of holiness, I can't overstate it in the Jewish mind, that this, this word is holy. And I think we've lost a, a little bit of that sense in the church world. We take for granted the miracle of this word. You know, and, it, and, and, you know, and, I, and I mentioned this Friday night, and I wanna, it's really important to say it again. You know, this is a miracle that this is here this morning. This scroll was stabbed by Nazis in World War II, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that. Scrolls were destroyed in the pogroms, the Holocaust, 
and all different kinds of persecutions. It's really a tremendous miracle that this is here before you this morning. But it's because of these scrolls that we have this, this Bible here in our, in our hands. And it, it's even cooler that we've got, I got Blue Letter Bible on here and the Bible app. Um, and it pops up, you know, verse of the day reminders. It's amazing. And all those things are amazing. But God's, God didn't do all this just so we could have this and this. Because the final destination for his word is the tablet of your heart. Thy word I've hid in my heart that I might not sin against me. That, you know, we have this holiday called Shavuot, or in the church world we call it Pentecost. Um, and the whole picture of, of Shavuot, a lot of people thought Pentecost starts in the book of Acts. It actually starts um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before um, the first Pentecost of Shavuot is Exodus 32, when the children of Israel, three months out of, out of Egypt, they're in the wilderness at the base of the mountain, and Moses gets the first set of the Ten Commandments, and he goes down with that first set of Ten Commandments, and what are the children of Israel doing? Worshiping what? Golden calf. Because they thought Moses had died. This is, that's the first Pentecost. And if you read on in that chapter, what happens? He tells the Levites to strap on their swords and go from every entrance of the camp and kill. And how many die on the first Pentecost when the word of God comes down on stone? About 3,000. You fast forward 1,500 years and the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit comes down in the upper room upon the disciples and they go out in the power of the Ruach HaKodesh and the Holy Spirit and they preach the Besor, the good news, the gospel of Yeshua, the Messiah. And how many get saved? About 3,000. See, God's working on his prophetic calendar. But we read Ezekiel 36 during Shavuot or Pentecost. And it's, it, that verse is, that we read and meditate on is about getting a soft heart in replace, replacement of a stony heart. Because that, that stony heart is cold and it's dead. But a soft heart is a, is a good tablet to receive his word. And that's the thing I, wanna, I really want to footstomp is, is this, is this is a miracle that it's here. And it's created the, the possibility of this and this, which creates a greater possibility of his word being emblazoned on the tablets of our hearts by his Holy Spirit. Amen? That we don't just carry this word in our hands, but we carry it in our hearts. And that's that reverential awe. So let's talk about the writing of a scroll. So um, this scroll behind me, this 500-year-old Sephardic Torah written in Iraq, um, first five books, it would take a sofer. Sofer is how we say scribe in Hebrew. It would take him a year and a half to write this scroll. Have you ever worked on writing something for a year and a half? Some of you may have. But when that sofer, that scribe, completes the task of writing this, he is going to count to see if there's 304,805 letters in that scroll. Has anybody in here ever counted the 304,000? 200,000? 100,000? 10,000? Going once, going twice. 1,000? Nobody's even counted to 1,000 in here. I had a, I mentioned this Friday night. So I had this garage show. We sold our house. And, um, uh, and uh, we had this monster pile of change. And I'm counting through this monster pile of change. I'm excited about the monster pile of change. And I'm counting through. And I'm getting close to being done. And my son Joe comes up and asks me this very unimportant question. And I'm, I'm kind of annoyed. And I answer his unimportant question. And I realize, oh, my gosh. I don't remember where I was at. You ever had that moment where you're counting a big number and imagine 304,805 letters? It's crazy. But not only is the one who wrote it going to do that, but a second more learned sofer is going to count to make sure that there's 304,805 letters. And then a third sofer is going to count to make sure that there's 304,805 letters. None of them are misshapen or incorrect. If they make a mistake with a regular word and they can correct it, good. But if they don't, they have to start that panel all over again. If they make a mistake with the name of God, they got to start it all over again. Not only that, but they'll count from the first letter in and from the last letter in, and they have to land on the Hebrew letter kaf 
And if they don't land on that Hebrew letter Kaf, it invalidates the scroll. And guess what? Start all over again. Now, there's no other biblical, no other text, rather, in all of humanity. No religious text, no secular text, no text of any sort that has been preserved with such miraculous intent and intentionality. But I would say not just meticulous, but miraculous intent. And they have this, this word called kavanah. And I really can these scribes, these sophers, they have to have what they call kavanah. I, that's kind of what I say, holy focus or holy intent. It's really the anointing of God to do this task. And you're talking a year and a half investment just for the first five books. It's an incredible investment of time. And this is how this word has been preserved from generation to generation. And when they write these scrolls, they expect them to last about 200 years. Many of them last much longer than that. Um, the synagogue in Los, An or, uh, Las Vegas just got a brand new Torah scroll, and it's written just like the predecessor um, that it was copied from. Letter from they, they don't write from memory. They look at a, a, another scroll, and they write um, just exactly as it is. There's no personal flair. There's no personal flair to the letters. They're writing it exactly as they see it. Um, and that scroll was copied from a, about a 500-year-old scroll, the one that, that was given to the congregation in Las Vegas. And so this is how this word has been preserved um, from generation to generation. So let's talk about the materials that the scrolls are written on. Uh, Stacy, can I get you to hold up the skins? So a lot of people think these scrolls were written on papyrus, which is an ancient plant-based form of paper, but it's not. These scrolls are written on what we call kosher animal skins. So this is 300-year-old deer skin right here. Um, this is unborn calf, um, calf, sheep, goat, and that's brand new deer. That's brand new deer, that's 300-year-old deer. And deer is one of the hardest ones to take ink, but it'll last um, really long. Um, but it's really uh, an incredible process. And did you know the sophers, especially at the time of Yeshua, that's how we say Jesus, um, they would raise the animal. They would process the animal. They would tan that down to the outer layer. Um, this, this side would be the outside where the hair would be on the animal. And that inside of that is that inside of that outer layer. And then they would take the sinew of the animal to make the thread to, to sew the panels together. Um, because on a longer scroll, you might have to have multiple animals to make that scroll. But these, because they're written on kosher animal skins, gave them an incredible enduring power. Um, and that's why you have a scroll like the Isaiah scroll from the Dead Sea Scroll that's, you know, 2,400, 2,500 years old. And, you know, for the most part, it's still intact. And these were, these were written with the intent to last from generation to generation, Medor Lador. So, um, in this, this parchment we call cloth. Now let's talk about the ink. The ink is really amazing. Um, I'm gonna hold these items. And when you guys get it at the end, you'll have a chance to come up and look at the scrolls and ask um, questions. But when you come up here, there'll be this little bowl. A lot of people think this is crystal because um, it looks like a crystal rock. But what it is is, sap. It's tree sap. We call it gum arabic, and it's the sap of the acacia tree. Now, this is a key component for the ink for writing scriptures. Now, does anybody in here know what the acacia tree was also used for? Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, all the poles for the tabernacle, all those powerful implements that represented God and his holiness, but also that same tree provided the key component to make the ink. And then the second component here is what we call a gall nut. Well, the gall nut is where a gall wasp will come, land on the leaf of an oak tree, and it'll deposit an egg on a leaf or a branch of an oak tree. And the oak tree will form this little nut around that wasp egg or larvae. And then when that wasp larvae is mature, it'll burrow its way out. And the sophers will gather these up, and these are rich in tannic acid, and it makes that pure black ink. And um, this ink... Um, when, it's, when it's made um, in the kosher way, they can write with it for 200 years. 200 years. You know, um, when my grandparents passed away, um, we were going, we, had, we sold a bunch of their stuff, had this huge garage sale, 
um, gave away a lot of stuff. And we were going through this dresser. And then there, there were some papers from the 1920s. Um, and the ink was almost completely faded. And the paper was crumbling and falling apart. I mean, it, basically, if you touched it, it was, it was falling apart. Because it wasn't made to last. But this scroll, you can still read perfectly. You can touch it. We don't want you to touch it. Um, uh, but you could. This thing, you can still read. You can, it's not going to fall apart. And it's 500 years old, 500 years plus old. Um, so there's no other, no, there's no other document. In, in a lot, have you ever heard of a diploma referred to as a sheepskin? Yeah, that comes from the people in, in, in the old days used to make diplomas in the way that the, the scribes would make biblical texts because they wanted them to last. And they made them from sheepskin. And they used that same kind of ink. Even the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were written in that same way. So, a little sidebar trivia. All right, so let's talk about the Sofer himself. Um, the Sofer um, would use an implement called, we call this feather, this is a turkey feather, a clumis. Um, that's what we call this in Hebrew. And, uh, and it's interesting because um, they would take this turkey feather and file down the end of it, and it looks like a calligraphy pen. And in a sense, this is the earliest form of what we would call calligraphy. And um, they would dip that into this, um, this special ink. They'd make a little split in here so that it would pull the ink up and wouldn't drip or run. And, um, but one of the things is, is the American turkey is referred to in Hebrew as Tarnagal Hodu. Now, hodu is a very special word. Hodu Adonai Kitov Ki Leolam Hazdo, which means give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. And that song is very, very powerful. You know, Psalm 136, Psalm 107, um, Psalms of Entrance for Passover, David wrote those. Um, every year at Passover, our people will, will sing that during the Passover. Um, when Solomon dedicated the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, all, they sacrificed an, an, a crazy amount of animals. But there's an interesting thing in there. It says that they were singing, Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. And something happened as he and all the people and the priests and the Levites were singing this. The glory of God, the kavod of God came down and filled the temple to such a degree that people couldn't even stand. And that's a former glory. Um, Fifteen chapters later, Jehoshaphat, king of um, Judah and Jerusalem, finds out that three armies are coming to destroy um, Ju um, Ju Judah and Jerusalem. And uh, he tears his clothes. He cries out in Second Chronicles chapter 20 to the Lord. And then he sends the army out. And what is the army singing? At the head of the army are the Levites. And what are they singing? Hodu Adonai Kitov Ki Leolam Hazdo. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. And as they sang that song, two of the armies turned on the one army and destroyed it. And then the remaining two armies turned on one another and destroyed one another. And then they get to this valley, which we call Barakah or Blessing. And there's no enemy left because the enemy destroyed himself. And all they all was left to do was collect the, the plunder. <laughs> Jeremiah 33, verse 10, yeah. speaks of this time. In the last days, when God has brought his people back out of the ashes, and they've been born again as a nation, and the streets that were desolate will once again hear this song. And it says, the voice of the bride and the voice of the bridegroom will together sing, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. And so when I look at this and I think about this, this bird called Tarnagal Du, and I think about give thanks and I think about the Sophers writing the promises of God that these promises are alive and active. And there's a day coming when the bride and the bridegroom together are gonna sing at the wedding supper of the lamb, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. That song that brought that former glory down sings of a greater glory 
There's a greater glory when we're together with King Jesus, Yeshua HaMashiach, our bridegroom. There's a greater glory when our enemy is defeated once and for all. And we're gonna sing together on that great wedding day, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Amen? Amen. All right. I love that. Now, if they can't get a turkey feather, they are allowed to use a reed. And, um, and even that's a powerful prophetic picture. The reed is called kaneh. And I'm just going to read this to you because that's a picture too. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Who's that? Who's going to bring back justice to the nations? Yeshua, Jesus, that's right. And he will cry aloud and lift up his voice and make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. So sometimes we use a reed to write these. And Yeshua is the bruised reed, but he wasn't broken. And he is the word incarnate. And he is the promise-keeping God. Amen? All right. So the Sophers, um, they have to memorize about 4,000 laws Jewish laws in order to be considered qualified to write these scrolls. And they really have to have that, what I mentioned earlier, Kavanaugh, this holy focus, this holy intent, or this anointing of God to do this great task. Um, today, there are only about 200 sofers alive in the world today writing scrolls, and 20 of those sofers are qualified to repair scrolls. Once a scroll is completed, you know, it makes its way to a congregation, and we read from it. One of the things, I had a gentleman ask me um, about Ezekiel, and uh, he's like, what, you know, what chapter is it open to? Well, one of the things you'll notice when you come up here, there's no chapter or verses. So if, I, if you could read Hebrew and I handed you the, the Psalm scroll, and I said, turn to Psalm 136, it'd still be a little bit challenging um, because there's no verses or chapters. You have to know that text with a, an incredible level of intimacy. Um, but when we read, we, we use this little device here, and this is called a yod. Yod means hand in Hebrew, and it's got a little hand on the end of it. And we read these scriptures with this yod, um, and um, we don't touch it with our finger, number one, because it's what? It's holy. But also the oils and the acids on our fingers would damage the scroll. So we don't touch them with our fingers. And so we use this little device here, and that's what it is if you've ever, ever seen one. It's not a music conducting thing. Um, all right. Um, so let's talk about some scrolls here. I want to point out to you the Esther scroll. It's one of my favorites. Any of you guys ever heard Jonathan Kahn? Yeah, so we were with him in Pennsylvania. And we were looking, he and I were, and our team, we were all looking at the Esther scroll. And um, I've got a, a JPS Tanakh here, Jewish Publication Society, Tanakh, Old Testament. If you open Esther chapter 9, it's not going to look like it looks like on the scroll. Um, but what's, what, what, what do you notice here on this Esther chapter 9? It, it's big, supersized text. Well, the, the reason that is, is, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Esther, but there's this guy, Haman. Boo, yeah. We always say boo and drown out the name of Haman. Haman is this guy, um, and it's interesting, it, it refers to him as an Agagite, um, the descendant of Agag, King Agag, who was king of the Amalekites. Saul was commissioned to destroy the Amalekites but he didn't. And the prophet Samuel um, chastised him for it and told him the king is going to be removed from you because you did not do that. And a few chapters later, you'll find that you see that David is, has a battle with the Amalekites because Saul says, well, I did, but he didn't. So some of the Amalekites were allowed to live on. Haman was a descendant of Agag. 
He was an Amalekite. And if you know that story in Genesis, they, Moses has this big battle. The Israelites are coming, they're coming out of Egypt. They have this big battle with who? The Amalekites. And he's got, every time he holds a hand and staff up in the air, they're winning. But if he drops them, they're losing. So Aaron and her have to hold his arms up. And then to, it gets to the end, of the end of the day. And it says that you'll battle with Amalek from generation to generation. This battle with Amalek is going to continue from generation to generation. But it's interesting, if you look into the lineage of Esther and Mordecai, the heroes of the book of Esther, they're descendants of Saul. So this is a rematch hundreds of years later between the descendant of um, Agag and the descendant of Saul. And God's going to finish what he started. Well, Haman's going to try to destroy the Jewish people. He's got this plan to destroy the people of God. And God raises up an Esther and a Mordecai to confront that evil plan and preserve God's people. And at the end, Haman had erected a gallows to hang um, Mordecai and to kill the Jewish people upon. Um, And instead, Haman and his 10 sons who were listed there in giant letters, they're hung on the gallows that they created. Now, if you look in the middle of the um, um, supersized letters, you'll see some super small letters in there. Um, and that equals 707, and there's a misshape involved, and that makes 5707. What is the Hebrew year right now? 5784. We just came into it on Friday. Well, um, 5707 was the end of 1946. What happened in 1946? Ten Nazi war criminals were hung on gallows for trying to destroy the Jewish people. See, our letters are also our numbers and every letter has numerical value. And encoded in there is this year 5707. And is it a coincidence that there's this guy, Hitler, these guys with the names that start with H. Um, um, No offense to anybody named Harry in here. Um, um, But Hitler raises up to do the very same thing that Haman did and 10 Nazi war criminals were hung. And did you know that the very first Nazi who was hung, two and o'clock in the morning after the Nuremberg trials was Julius Stryker. And as he's getting ready to be hung, he, he screams out, Purim Fest, 1946. Well, Purim is the holiday that comes from the book of Esther. Now, is that a coincidence or is that prophetic? Well, I'm gonna point out another scroll to you. And it's super significant this morning as we point out that, can I get you to hold up this scroll? This is a half Torah scroll, and this was a, school that was a scroll that was used in a Jewish school. Poland was written in the 1700s. And, um, and uh, this scroll was in a school in a village in Poland, and the Nazis rolled into this village, and a Nazi SS soldier took his bayonet and stuck it into the scroll. And then they tossed it from one scroll to the next, and it was stabbed five times. Now, those Nazis are no longer here. That scroll is here. It's a, it's a, it's a masavat, it's a standing stone, it's a living witness to our promise-keeping God. You guys can put it down. But even more so, this fellow right here, who is the son of a Holocaust survivor, is a He is a standing stone, a living witness. That scroll and this man are a witness to the power of our promise-keeping God. No matter what Haman or Hitler the devil raises up, he will not foil God's plan. And not only, not only is he a Jewish man, the son of a Holocaust survivor, native-born Israeli, but he is a believer, full of God's Holy Spirit, bringing Jewish people to Messiah. Amen. All right. God's awesome, isn't he? We're on the winning team. We just need to be reminded of that every once in a while. And the weapons of our warfare are mighty. And we have a mighty weapon, his word. Amen. All right. Um, Can I get you guys to hold up Psalms? Um. So this psalm scroll was open to Psalm 119. I'll get my yacht here. And the reason I want to point this out to you is when you look at the scriptures in their native form, 
There's, there's things that you don't get when you're looking at it in a translation. And this is Psalm 119, verse 1. And you'll notice that these eight verses all begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. And the next eight verses begin with the second letter, Beit, and then Gimel, then Dalit. All through all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. You guys can go ahead and set it down. If you open up in your English Bible to Psalm 119, you'll see eight verses. You'll see phonetic spelling or the Hebrew letter Aleph and in the, or the phonetic spelling of it in your English Bible, then eight verses, and you'll see bait in eight verses. And they're trying to show you because when you translate it, there's no way to make all the, le- all the verses start with the letter A in English because uh, it doesn't make sense. There's no way to do that. So the only way for them to show you that this was an acrostic, this was a powerful um, uh, psalm that was written in a very special way in its native language meant for memorization of this, the longest chapter in the Bible. And so this is just one picture of um, just some of the beauty that you see when you see the scriptures in their native form or their native text. All right, a couple more things um, uh, that I want to uh, um, bring to your attention besides the scrolls. Now, how many of y'all know what this is? Shofar. Yeah, this is a, this is a ram, kudu ram's horn. It's a shofar. Um, in, in the Bible, there's two types of trumpets mentioned, the shofar and the hatzotzerah, uh, which was a long metal flared trumpet. But most of the time when you see trumpet mentioned, it's referring to this. When the walls of Jericho were brought down, they were brought down with this, this super weapon right here. And, um, and, um, and it is, it's a super weapon. You know, I'll tell you a little story. So I was speaking at this Messianic congregation in, uh, outside of Columbus, Ohio, in a town called Mansfield. And uh, these ladies, they're all part of the intercessory prayer team. Um, and this was about seven years ago. Um, they came up and told me the story. They said um, the lady had a dream. She was in the Capitol building in D.C. blowing the shofar. And... Uh, she got up and told all of her intercessory prayer ladies, and they're like, well, let's go. So they piled in their car with the shofar. They got to the security checkpoint at the Capitol building, and the security guard was like, well, what is that? Is that a weapon? And she's like, well, yeah, it is. And, you know, he starts to freak out. <laughs> um, the head of security at the Capitol building comes over, and he goes, you have a shofar. He goes, I had a dream about a woman with a shofar. And he said, let them through. And he took them to every nook and cranny of the, of the Capitol building. And they blew that shofar all over. And he said, to my knowledge, that's the first time I know of that the shofar had ever been blown. And it is a weapon. So, but this is a very special day. We, we sound the, we, um, on, on Yom Tov, we, that uh, started Friday night, we sound the shofar a hundred times in the synagogue service. And, and it's a prophetic reminder of the promise of our promise-keeping God that he is coming back with a trumpet blast and a shout. He's coming back for us, his bride. And when he comes back for us, his bride, we're going to sing with our bridegroom, Hodu Adonai Kitov, Ki Leolam Hazdo, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Amen? Now, this Talit's very special to me. Jonathan Kahn gave it to me um, about seven years ago. And, uh, but it's not just special because that's, it's more special because God himself and not another gave us, um, this, this talit, we, this prayer shawl, a lot of people call it prayer shawl, it's talit. Um, in the, in the old Testament, God commanded that we would wear these tassels. We call them tzitzit or tzitzit, um, in Hebrew on the, not, not the corners of our garment, the kanaf. Um, or the kanafim. Kanaf means wing. Doesn't mean corner, it means a wing of, of our garment. And it, this, this tassel has five knots, which represent the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. Um, and then there's a certain number of windings between each knot. 
Remember I said our letters are also our numbers. So this equals Yod, He, Vav, He, the holy sacred name of God, Yahweh, um, which our people don't, it's, we consider it so holy we don't even pronounce it. Um, and then there's a single blue thread to Kelet blue thread that goes through that God commanded. And it's a picture of, of the heavens that were sons and daughter of the king of heaven, bound to him by his word, but we're not just his sons and daughter, we're his bride. And um, you know that story of the woman with the issue of blood? What did she do when Jesus came by? She grabbed a hold of the corner of his garment. Well, she's grabbing for the kanaf, the wing of his garment, because the prophet Malachi said that the son of righteousness would arise with healing in his wings. Who's the son of righteousness? Jesus, right? Well, he didn't walk around with a set of wings on his back when he was ministering with the disciples. So what does that mean? The wings of his garment, the kanaf. She knew that he, in fact, was the son of God, the Messiah, the promised Messiah of Israel. And that if, if she would grab hold of the, the kanaf, the wing of his garment, as the prophet Malachi foretold, that she would receive healing. She made a declaration of faith with her yod, with her hand, that I see you, you are Messiah. I'm going to grab a hold of the wing of your garment and I'm going to receive my healing. And when she did, she was healed. Amen. So this isn't just a prayer show. This is a prophetic mantle. In fact, if you study this in the scriptures, it's, it's really quite powerful. But what, what we're going to do is I'm going to bless you with the ironic blessing. You know, the Lord gave us a prayer in the New Testament, the Lord's Prayer but he also gave us a blessing in Numbers. And he instructed Moses, um, the brother of Aaron, um, or Aaron, the brother of Moses, um, whenever he blessed the people of God, that he would bless them with this blessing. Because in doing so, they would be placing his name upon his people. And now, that's, this isn't liturgy when we do this. I believe when the name of the living God is placed upon his people, that's a prophetic act, that something is going to happen when the name of God. And I'm going to hold my hands this way. Anybody know what this is? Spock, Leonard, Leonard Nimoy. Well, Leonard Nimoy was Jewish, and this sim the high priest would hold his hand this way because this is symbolizing the Hebrew letter Sheen. You know, the three valleys in Israel come together at Jerusalem, and they make this Hebrew letter Sheen, which is the first letter in the title of God, Shaddai or El Shaddai. And, every, and the doorpost of every Jewish home is marked with this letter. And it's symbolic of his name being a place upon his people. So when you're watching Spock, you didn't know you were getting blessed, but you were. So, pretty cool, huh? All right. So it's our custom to ask you to rise to receive this blessing. Now, after I give you this blessing, I'm going to give the mic back to the pastor, and then you'll have an opportunity um, to come up here and line up on this side and see the scrolls our team's going to go behind, and we're going to answer questions for you. Um, and then we'll have a gift for every family that's here today at the end of the line down here. So with that said, Yebarekakadunayvayishmarecha. <sighs> And this means the Lord will. Doesn't mean maybe or might. It means the Lord will bless you and keep you because you're chiseled into his book, he is a keeping God. The Lord will cause his face to shine upon you because he knows the number of the hairs upon your head. He knows you better than you know yourself or anybody else. He created you for such a time as this, that you are an army of modern day Mordecai's and Esther's. Not just one Mordecai, not just one Esther, but that you're a legion of Mordecai's and Esther's born for such a time as this, and his face is shining upon you. 
and he will lift up his countenance upon you, his happy Abba Daddy smiling face upon you to give you shalom, which is peace, which is completeness, and which is wholeness in every area you have need. B'shem Yeshua HaMashiach, in the mighty name of Jesus, we bless you. And the people of God say, Amen. Amen. All right. Well, oh, we have one more thing I almost forgot. You may be seated. We have a gift for the church, too. Everywhere we go, um, we want to leave a gift, not just for you families, which we have a gift for you families, but we have a gift down here for the church, which we we showed Friday night, and we're going to show again. Um, And if I can get Pastor and uh, Pastor Shirley, come on up here. And Stacy's going to present this to y'all. So everywhere we go across the United States, we're so blessed to be able to bring the Word of God in the scroll forms like this. But we also bless our congregations that we uh, attend in Marianne and the foundation would like to present, present this to your pastor and wife and also the church, you guys. And so um, you guys get together and figure out where you're going to hang it and let it be a blessing to, to your church. And this is um, this is an ancient Torah scroll fragment over 200 years old. Um, uh, written in uh, Northern Europe, and it's Genesis 19, verse 16 to 24, 46, and it speaks of the binding of Isaac when Abraham took Isaac up onto the mountain. We call that the Akita, um, and then of Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, so this is our gift from the foundation to to your church, and we ask that you guys would hang it somewhere as a reminder of our promise-keeping God. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. And uh, so we're going to give everyone opportunity to view the scrolls. And um, what a blessed time to be together. And if you don't know the word, if you don't know Jesus, make sure if you're here, see us so that we can introduce you to the word of life. God bless you guys.